Hello, everyone. I am David Tamez, and this is Lawrence Talks, a community podcast dedicated to exploring the issues of the day and their philosophical significance. Today on our show, we sit down with author and professor emeritus in the Department of Political Science at KU, Paul Schumacher, and we discuss his new book, The 28th Amendment, Beyond Abolishing the Electoral College. Our podcast is produced thanks in part to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, KU Philosophy Department, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening, and enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am David Tamez, and this is Lawrence Talks. Today on our show, we are discussing a topic that has once again received public attention and scrutiny. I'm, of course, speaking of the U.S.'s Electoral College. Here to talk to us about it and his new book, The 28th Amendment, Beyond Abolishing the Electoral College, is author and professor emeritus in the Department of Political Science at KU, Paul Schumacher. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Nice to be here. To begin, can you let let our listeners know a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your background? Well, uh, as you said, I was a professor of political science for 45 years here at KU. I never thought about the Electoral College uh, for the first almost 30 years. Uh, Then uh, 2000 happened, and I got interested in it, largely because I was asked by the news media and the uh, civil uh, civic groups uh, what I thought of it and how it worked, because all of a sudden it seemed like it was going to matter in the opposite way that it did matter. I mean, people were thinking that Bush could win the popular vote but uh, lose to Gore in the Electoral College. And so I... um, I looked at the literature about it and found out political science didn't have any significant literature. They really had, it hadn't mattered since the discipline was uh, founded in the early part of the 20th century. So I thought this would be an opportunity to learn, uh, you know, have a different kind of research agenda, not my typical thing, something I knew nothing about, and try to learn from a bunch of people who might have something to say about it. And I brought together a group of uh, three dozen political scientists to see if we could reach a collective judgment about whether the Electoral College, in comparison to various alternatives, was the way to go. We couldn't come to a conclusion. And so I pretty much... And then the book came out uh, right at 9-11, and so nobody cared about that book. It sort of uh, was a—and I I basically forgot about it. And and then 2016 happened, and I uh, got re-energized again on the topic. So at least in the first sense, the concern was over— a Republican losing out due to the Electoral College, at least the initial before the election actually took place. Right. Uh, the second time, or currently, the concern was over after a Republican won, lost the lost a popular vote, but won the uh, Electoral College. Do you find that the concern is primarily based on the results of it, or is there some other uh, underlying? Yeah, historically, uh, since people started polling the citizenry on that issue, for until about 10 years ago, Americans were overwhelmingly in favor of having a popular vote rather than the Electoral College. By that, I mean roughly 75 to 85 percent on polls would show support for abolishing the Electoral College. Uh, what happened then was that Republicans began to see an advantage in the system. Mm. And so they, the polls started to show a very significant partisan divide on the issue. So part of my book, it's just a small part of the book, is trying to say that there really is no structural reason for that. That is, the Republicans could lose uh, under a system that should have brought them victory uh, but didn't. So I'm trying to make it understood by Republicans that um, it's really not a question of partisan advantage. It's a question of uh, democratic norms and ultimately getting candidates who are acceptable to as many Americans as possible. 
And just, uh, I imagine that some of our listeners are a few years removed from a social studies or government class. Uh, could you, I guess, detail a, a little bit about what exactly the Electoral College does? Um, and I and I think you state in your book that it's gone through some changes over, right. over the years since first being implemented. Okay, when it was first implemented, it was really just thought. I mean, at that point, America was not a democracy; it was a uh, meritocracy of various for, uh, types. And so, the idea of the framers of the Constitution was, first of all, they couldn't agree on any other alternative, mm -hmm. and so this. Uh, idea of having uh, a sort of a fourth branch of government, you know, judicial, legislative, executive, and the Electoral College, mm. that this was almost a fourth branch composed, it's a temporary branch, it would be composed every four years simply for the purpose of screening out the most qualified, uh, experienced statesmen in the country and uh, choosing among them who should be our chief executive. And so that ooh, that worked. It, it, I mean, it was sort of the model. It, what they, the idea was that the, you know, it was going to be a temporary institution, and who would be the members of that? Well, it would be for the states to determine. They, each state would be given uh, a number of electors equal to uh, their... Uh, number of representatives they have in the House and two senators. So um, Kansas would have, if, if we were a, uh, a state at that time, we would have had six electors. Mm -hmm. The legislature would pick them. Uh, they would they would know who the most uh, knowledgeable and uh, most uh, having good judgment uh, kinds of people would determine who should be our president. And so basically that's how it worked for the for, until the Jackson era. I think you said part of the reason why it, it changed is that was that, that initial uh, model was deemed a, a bit uh, undemocratic or didn't give enough voice or power to to the voters. Right. Uh, democratic norms grew dramatically beginning at uh, 19, uh, 1800. And so what we had is this upward arc of democratic norms, including more universal suffrage that got rid of property qualifications, both for office mm. and for voting, uh, that sort of thing. They went to having means of balloting that were uh, more uh, secret ballots rather than when people would simply have to declare their uh, uh, allegiance for one candidate or another in front of all their neighbors, in front of their employers, and that would be in a, a situation where people would be inhibited from uh, you know, voting their true preferences. So that all, uh, that all occurred. And then the other major thing that happened at that point was the development of political parties. Hmm. At the when we first got the uh, Electoral College, there were no parties. They emerged during Washington's administration, basically between the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians, mm -hmm. the Federalists and the Republicans. And so th at that point, the, uh, the, re the Republicans and the Federalists within Congress, they were party caucuses in Congress, they would decide who to support. Rather than necessarily the most qualified, they would say who is qualified, but also uh, represents the principles and values of one side of the partisan divide or versus the other side. And uh, then they began basically uh, instructing the uh, electoral college delegates or the electors in the college how to vote. I mean, the people throughout the country were becoming Federalists or Republicans, and if you were a Federalist in the states, you would tend to go with what was recommended by the Congressional Federalist Caucus and so forth. So we started with that kind of partisan division, and then in the 19, 1820s, we began to have uh, uh, more mass-based parties. Mm. It became, how do you, we've, democracy meant giving people opportunities to vote, but they still needed direction. And parties were thought to be the link between 
officials in Washington and the citizens. They would link the two together. They would give the cues to voters. And so uh, the development of parties, uh, particularly Jacksonian Democrats and then a series of other parties, the Whigs, the Republicans, and so forth, uh, merged on the other side. And was there a worry about how informed voters could be? Well, yes. There was not a great deal of, in fact, there was very little confidence that the average citizen knew very much about politics. Uh, Most of them, um, uh, you know, on the federal level, uh, they didn't think uh, national politics was very important. That was a rich man's game. Mm -hmm. And so most people didn't really pay much attention. That emerged, you know, that national consciousness emerged about in the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, And so uh, when that happened and when there were more newspapers available uh, people became more literate, all of that made citizens a little bit more aware and informed. But I don't think anybody still thought they were terribly um, uh, good judges of who the best candidates were. And so the basic idea, well, but we are now moving towards democracy. We have to give them a voice. So the best way to have it is party competition. So it's a matter of which parties, whose party's candidate can get the most votes. We began to lose sight of the idea of having the most qualified person. Mm. We began to focus on who was the most popular person. Did our idea of who's most qualified also change or what it means to be most qualified? Uh, I think so. I mean, I do think there, uh, I think politics has had gotten an increasingly bad reputation Mm -hmm. in the last uh, 50, 60 years. And so uh, there is a a notion that the person who is most qualified is not necessarily the person with the most political experience. Uh, That is, they're not the people who know how to reach out to maximize the approval of people in the country, they're rather more technical-oriented. They're more business-oriented. They tend to think about things in terms of um, uh, economic rationality. I'll use that term loosely for the moment, uh, as opposed to political rationality, which are two entirely different things in my estimation. Yeah. You mentioned a few alternatives to to the electoral college uh, in your in your book, and you end up choosing one at the end. But we'll get we'll get to that uh, later, or here in a bit. But what are some of those? Uh, what are some of the alternatives that have been discussed uh, over the over the years? Well, there have been a lot. I don't know if we've got time to go through all of them. Right. But uh, let's just jump to the hot topic right now, yeah. and that is the national popular vote initiative. That is, there's an idea that there should be an interstate compact that will, let's say, if 15 states who control 270 electoral votes, if they agree among themselves to cast their ballots, not for the candidate who won in their state, but for the candidate winning the most votes in the popular, the most popular votes nationally, you would get a de facto popular plurality system. The candidate getting the most popular votes would be the president. Mm -hmm. They would all agree to do that. And that has now, that's been the hot topic uh, for the last uh, 15 years. A guy uh, in Northwestern, a law professor there, came up with this clever idea to do an end run around the Constitution. All, All efforts to reform the Electoral College in various ways had been voted down in the past and there was no sense that it, any new proposal could be successful in the future. So, but if the 15 large, if the largest states were the ones that felt the most aggrieved by the Electoral College because it gave a greater advantage to people from small states. Right. Uh, and more than that, the larger states tend to be democratic. So 15 states have signed onto this interstate compact. 
they now control roughly 200 electoral votes. And the additional 75 electors that are needed to put the compact into effect are within shouting distance. I mean, at least one branch of legislature in these states have signed on to that. So what happens is either one branch declines or the governor, typically a Republican, vetoes it. Mm. But that is a possibility and is the way most electoral college reform advocates are going. I think that's a mistake. Okay. You said that involves a work around the Constitution. Right. Because generally the idea, the most people think, might think that uh, the Electoral College is part of the Constitution. It is. Um, and so they think that it would require an amendment of some kind. And you're saying it, that's not necessarily the case. What this is, I think they would find, I think the Supreme Court would find this to be unconstitutional because it would mean that the... Um, state electors would not have the discretion to vote their conscience. And they have just declared uh, in a court ruling back in August that the electors did intend for the uh, electors in the college to have independent judgment, even if they were being selected for their commitment to one candidate or the other. If they change their mind, they have the right to change their mind. Right. And as long as there's always that ca capacity of the elector to exercise his independent judgment against whatever instructions he gets from the legislature, from whatever commitments he's made to the citizens who may be elected them to be their electors in the college, all that would be for naught. I think in this previous election, there is at least one objector. There have been, okay, oh, they, these are called rogue voters in rogue literature, voters, okay. or unfaithful electors. <laughs> Until uh, 2000, there was only seven in the history, and they never mattered. Mm -hmm. Then we started to get a few more uh, in, between 2004 and 2012, but in 2016, we had seven of these people who voted against their pledged commitment to support the candidate winning in their state. I'm referring to a case, when I was talking about the Supreme Court's overriding uh, a decision of a, in Colorado, one of the electors, he was pledged to vote for Hillary Clinton. Mm. He instead voted for John Kasich. Oh. And as a consequence, the, the Democrats sued, well, under Colorado law, they said, no, you can't do that. You had, it, so they got rid of that elector and substituted in someone who would faithfully vote for Hillary, even though it didn't matter. You know, it was a matter of principle to, to do that. And in the end, the Supreme Court, no, the legislature can't even instruct the delegates how to vote or substitute them if they don't vote the way they wanted to. Do most states have a law stating that they're an all or nothing? Yes, uh, all but two. And the two, Nebraska and Maine, have what are called district plans, which means that if a candidate wins the state but loses in one or two districts, those districts would peel off one elector for the person otherwise lost in the state. So two examples uh, in 2016, Trump carried the second district of Maine and got one elector in Maine, even though he lost more decisively in the first district. Therefore, he got one elector in the first district, Trump got one in the second district, and, and Hillary got the two that are assigned to the state because of their two senators. So Hillary got three electors in that state and Trump got one. In 2008, um, Obama appealed off one elector in the Omaha area mm. of Nebraska. But those are, but that's the, other than that, it's winner take all. Yeah. All, if you win by just one vote, in a state, you get all 20, all all their electors. That was a big issue in 2000 when Florida, it all came down to Florida, and the difference between the candidates, you know, it, it, 
kept going, getting smaller and smaller. Well, at what point is it going to get to one vote being decisive? Well, it never got to that, but it got close to that. Right. It got to two, two, two or three hundred. And but whoever got one more vote, popular vote than the others, got all. 25 of the electors in uh, Florida, and that was enough to... Some of the criticism with Electoral College is that it's considered undemocratic now. Mm -hmm. And one thing you say in the book is that that's not necessarily the case. It depends on what what sort of democracy or uh, principles we're we're considering at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of the reasons I got involved was I wasn't sure what was the proper outcome, Uh, because I did know that democracies don't always have uh, majority rule or even the most votes rule. What matters in the long run is that you just simply follow the rules that are in play. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes, what are the proper rules to have in play? And so one of the things I try to do in the book is to describe what are the common values that exist in America that we all pretty much agree to. We may not deeply philosophically have a, a reason for those values, but uh, equality is the most important democratic value. Mm-hmm. And so there are m- several ways in which the Electoral College reduces inequality or reduces equality. There are several inequalities that are introduced by the Electoral College. I've already mentioned one, and that is the one that most people f- focus on, is that plus two advantage for small states. Easiest way to understand that is because uh, Wyoming has three people in Congress. They have one representative, three people in Congress, and they get three electors. California has uh, 57 people in Congress, 55 in the House and two senators. They get 57. Now, that sounds like California has a big advantage, but if you break it down per person... If what your conception is that democracy means a person's vote from Colorado ought to count equally with one person in Wyoming, then you do the math and you see, well, in Wyoming, there's one elector for every 170,000 voters, whereas in California, there is one elector for every 725 voters. So basically, your vote weight in Wyoming is four times that than if you live in uh, Wyoming. But that's not the key. Can I go ahead and talk yeah. about the, the real where it doesn't matter? You and I don't matter because we're from Kansas. Our Kansas is already safe for the Republicans. I, I can almost guarantee that we, no matter what happens between now and November 3rd, Kansas will be red. All this all the analyses show that there are only about six or seven states that are what we say are in play. Mm -hmm. The others are predetermined given the partisan shifts or partisan domination of one side or the other. So the candidates look almost entirely, focus all their time, energy, commitments, and so forth to the in-place states. People from the other states are really discouraged from paying much attention. They are their votes aren't solicited. They are not seen as uh, they're not given equal treatment. A lot of the defense of the electoral colleges, the small states uh, are focused on more a little bit more than the bigger, uh, more populated states. That's one, I think that's there's some truth to that. Although in those days, the small states and the big the small states tended to be in the south, and they were interested in preserving states' rights, southern traditions, and we, we knew when we would not get uh, Virginia and the Carolinas and Georgia to join the union unless they felt their interests were secured. Mm-hmm. So the way the uh, quote. Connecticut Compromise worked out was it did ensure them greater representation both in the Senate and in the Electoral College, and that was the primary reason. It was actually, generally was to secure uh, slavery rather than a small state, large state divide. Over time, 
we tend to think of it more as a small and large state divide. But there's been a lot of analysis that shows that actually it's not, it's a misconception that the small states are uh, privileged or uh, th hmm. that the candidates spend more time and money and resources on the large states. What they do is they focus on the states that are in play. Right. And those tend to be a company in mostly larger states that are in play, but there are some smaller states that are in play, and they'll they'll pay attention to Kansas if we were in play. And so, you mentioned one alternative already. What's what's another one? Well, uh, another one that's been much discussed is what we talked about: having all the states have district elections. Because the, the the other problem, besides the unequal value of the votes, is the problem of the winner take all. That's where ultimately, the, if one candidate squeaks out narrow victories in some states, wins overwhelmingly in other states, that's how you get this mismatch between the candidate getting the most popular votes nationally and the, and the most electoral votes. So if you didn't have the winner-take-all system, mm -hmm. you could have uh, something that would be, the mismatch would be less likely. But, and so a lot of Reformers have said, let's just get rid of the winner-take-all things and have something like district elections in all states. But the Constitution says that can't be mandated by Congress or without some kind of constitutional amendment, mm, which gives okay. st states, takes away the state's options of selecting their electors as they want to. And so we don't, we really... Most states aren't going to want to do that. I mean, the reason most states have winner-take-all is it multiplies the clout. I mean, if right. California, you know, well, that's a bad example. Um, let's say um, Ohio. If Ohio votes 52% uh, Republican and 48% Democrat, and they did it by district, the... Ohio delegates, the 20 delegates, it'd be split more like 11-9 rather right. than all 20 Ohio electors voting for the winning candidate. The states want to continue their dominant, you know, having a, a great clout, and the parties don't want to give that up because right. there's always a party in the states that's dominant, and they expect that... You know, I mean, why would the Republicans in Kansas vote for district elections when they know they're going to win, get all six electoral colleges? They might lose Johnson County in the first district in Kansas if we had district elections. Why would they want to allow that? Right. So both both parties can benefit from yeah, uh, it, from the electoral college. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that's the biggest. Oh, that's a huge one of the big problems with the Electoral College is it has, it creates a two-party duopoly. Mm -hmm. Both the Republicans and Democrats are advantaged by this. It's, there's a huge disadvantage for any third party because of the winner-take-all things. If you're a, a socialist in Kansas, why would you waste your vote on the socialist ticket? Because you know they're not going to win. Uh, and so you would choose the lesser of the two evils among the major parties. But you can really see that in the 2016 election. Most people did not like either Donald Trump or Hillary. Right. And there's a lot more support for libertarian values and their their candidate Johnson and or for green values and their candidate Stein and even the there was a guy that ran on a, a sort of a, I can't remember the name of the party and uh, but it was just an anti-Trump thing. Given the distribution of, of support throughout the country, we would have thought these candidates would have done much better than they did. But people didn't vote for these third-party candidates because they didn't want to waste their vote. They thought it was might be close between the two majors, and they wanted to vote for the lesser of the two evils. And that, and that seems to be uh, popping up again with the, at least in the primary, right? With between Bernie and right. Biden, uh, many say that they like what Bernie is proposing, but they don't think he can be elected. Right. There's been some discussion that I'm aware of that 
the left center or the left of center folks or the more liberal wing of Democrats, they're considering not voting for Biden this time around because they they think if they do that, then they lose their their leverage in terms of getting their voice heard by the eventual candidate. Is that a, another just another scenario created by? the Electoral College. You get these factions uh, within these parties that... Well, you because we simply only have two viable yeah. major parties, that means there's going to be... And because these parties are not ideologically consistent, they have many factions within them, there's always going to be huge inter, you know, battles within the party prior to the, you know, Conventions, and then after the conventions, you have this sort of rally around whoever is the candidate to beat the other guys. But uh, for the most part, you reduce the choices of voters by the time we get to the Electoral College. Part of what my book is about is not just reforming the Electoral College per right. se. It's about just reforming the way we nominate our candidates. That's what I think. Is, I mean... I call it the nomination mess. It's got. It's always been a, a yeah. complicated system, but since 1970, when we tried to reform it to make it more democratic, it's just gotten messier and messier. I think one of the ways of understanding that is that the parties run their own nomination thing. These are not state or any national organizations. They're just... There's in civil society, people who are members of the Democratic Party run the caucuses in Iowa, they run the primaries in Kansas. So right now there's a discussion going on of whether Kansas should uh, just get rid of the primary because it doesn't, you know, if, if Bernie's out, then what, what's the point? Yeah. But, you know, if we can just switch it around at the end because, well, we think it's done, you know, you're basically disempowering voter choice. There's one other option you bring up, because it was between, I think, two. Uh, you discussed two at the end. One of them was ranked choice right. uh, voting. Right. There was a Democratic candidate that brought that up. I would The way I would reform the nomination process is I would have a national approval ballot. Mm -hmm. That is, to do rank order voting, you have to... Rank order X number of more than right. two candidates. You have to, have, you know, Maybe usually five. people think about five mm -hmm. as the as the optimal number. Okay, so what if you have just two parties controlling? They're having their two nominations and. You know, where are you going to get five candidates? Well, you maybe we'll have third-party candidates, but who will those candidates be? So what I'm proposing is that the parties, first of all, go back and do their job, which is to nominate, find the most qualified person who represents the philosophy of the party. So the Republicans should choose the candidate who most represents their values and who thinks would be well qualified to the job, and that the Democrats do the same. And they have conventions in which they decide, but without any primaries, zero public input on that. This has to be you know, in terms of your idea of a, uh, or not your idea, the, that author that you mentioned, Jason Brown, anti-democracy, uh, meritocracy of a sort. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about that. you got to let the people who are knowledgeable have a little bit more influence, and the way they should have influence is selecting a person who they think is going to be rep do a good job of representing the positions of the party and the American consensus, they have to find somebody who's acceptable. Okay, by my system, Donald Trump would likely have to be not nominated by the Republicans. They would say Donald Trump could not get a majority of acceptance in approval ballot. Mm -hmm. All of Nate Silver's work and other people who are doing surveys have shown that Donald's difference between his has generally about a 40 to 42 percent approval, 50 to 55 percent disapproval. By that thing, he'll never get approval ballots. By he'd have to have half to, to under my system to be one of the finalists. And the Republicans, if they didn't have a finalist, would lose their major right. party status. So they'd have to think, well, who can we get that would be approved by most Americans? So and I create a scenario where I name who I think they would choose. I'm not going to give it away now, yeah. but okay. Uh, and the Democrats would have to think the same thing. 
Now, maybe by that logic, the Democrats would still come to Joe Biden, and I think they would over um, Bernie. Right. But I think if they were to, without having gone through the primary process and all of that sort of thing that sort of disoriented people, I think they would have come up with a candidate that would be much more a younger, more multi-ethnic candidate that would be more in touch with their principles. I wonder if, if in that system, and given, the, I guess, the current trajectory of where, where the uh, primary is going, if a, someone like a Bernie would choose to be the candidate of some other yeah. party. I think exactly. He, what would happen in the, in the scenario I, cr- I create, this is all just fantasy, yeah. uh, but it was fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so I decided, I, I thought, well, if the Democrats had, you know, if they weren't having all these things that had, the only reason Kamala Harris lost was she didn't know how to run a campaign. But that wouldn't matter under my system if she was the most qualified and had the most approval, uh, she would be the one that the Democratic professionals would have picked for their nomination. Joe, uh, Bernie, probably would have been really ticked at that. He would have run off to the Democratic Socialists and say, okay, I'll run as a Democratic Socialist if you'll have me, and they yeah. would have him. So, which, And you'd get a Green candidate who would do the same thing. So you would end up with... First, the two major parties. You'd have Donald, by, I just by definition would say the incumbent, if he's eligible, he hasn't had his second term yet. He would be uh, in the uh, list of possible candidates that we would decide. Uh, in other words, I would think we'd probably be choosing among about 25 uh, people as of for the presidency, and you would have to decide whether you approve of Donald or not. Do you approve of Bernie or not? Do you approve of Kamala Harris or not? Do you approve of, uh, let's say, Kasich uh, or whoever? You would, and then you'd add up all these things, and if a person got the, uh, if unless they got more approvals and disapproval, they're out. If the, the, the top five with more approvals and disapprovals would be the finalists for a rank order general mm-hmm. election. Okay. That way you inoculate, you have double inoculation against getting candidates with a small base pursuing an ideological or a um, just a narrow agenda because you'd ha- the candidates would have to be approved by the majority of Americans twice, both in the primary or in the first election, the approval balloting, and then in the, in the rank order, they'd have to be one of the things about the rank order. Let's say that Donald somehow got in, uh, got the approval ballots on the first, enough approval ballots to be a, one of the five finalists, and then you'd get whoever the Republicans and the Democrats. Let's say uh, Elizabeth Warren. She did not get the Democratic nominee. By our new system here of uh, rank order, I'll run as a a revised progressive party. Mm. We'll get a progressive party. So I will run on the progressive ballot. Or you might have Bloomberg going just as a plain independent. Anyway, so you would get the five top people getting the top five approval ballots. Okay, let's say in that, what happens in in the rank order system, you go in as a voter and you decide which you rank order from one to five, your candidates. You don't have to do four or five, even three, or even two. If you only have one preference, you feel very you could just do that. Hmm. That means the other four candidates, you're, you're ultimately disapproving of, okay? But under the system, that mathematics of it, how, how it works out, is that after, the, for, after everybody votes, and you would no longer have things being from the East Coast being counted before people in Hawaii or California have voted. At the end of the day, after all the votes, mail ballots, everything have been counted, then computers count up all of the votes. And if anybody gets a majority of first place votes, hey, they're the winner. If nobody gets a majority of first place votes, which would probably be the case in any multiple candidate election, you take the person with the least number of votes. In the scenario I create in this book, that would be Elizabeth Warren. And so her votes would be 
She'd be tossed out. Anybody who then was voted for Warren first, their votes would be transferred to their second-ranked candidate automatically by the computer. It would transfer it. And then with after those that first candidate's votes have been transferred, now is there any majority winner? And under my scenario I create, and this is likely, after the first one was getting we're down to four, we probably still wouldn't have a winner. We might not even have a winner after it's down to three. We definitely would get a winner when it was down to two, okay? But the winner would always have to be supported because they were ranked and therefore approved by a majority of people. But if, let's say, Trump was the candidate and he, well, even though he won in that first round before we started transferring votes, he had his base all turned out and voted number one for him. Maybe he, of the 200 million voters, maybe he got 70 million votes the first time. Mm-hmm. He, he would go up a little bit over time, but because he was low-ranked or not ranked by oh, yeah. so many votes, he could never win. It would, the way I work it out, that a very surprising candidate comes to the top, and we'll let the readers find yeah. out. Yeah. I will get, give people a hint. Even though I'm not a Republican, I have rigged my examples to show that the system would work in Republicans' favor. And the reason I want to do that is I'm trying to make the Republicans recognize that there's nothing, any Democratic bias in what I'm proposing, and that if if the Republicans would just be more, in my terms, pluralistic, that is, they weren't so committed to a extreme agenda, they would do much, much better. And you, and you uh, I guess you're concerned about the bias or making that clear is because you yourself... Identify as a Democrat? Or? Yes. Okay. okay. And I make that, uh, well, what I identify with is I'm, uh, yeah, opposed, mean- I'm opposed to uh, the president. I think he's uh, a demagogue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I think people will get that as, in reading your book that you are, dem- I think you're, you're a Democrat. And, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that's that's a very powerful move of, of to show that. It need not be the case that, or that you you rigged your your system in such a way where your preferred candidate uh, doesn't win. Doesn't win. Yeah. No. Um, so I think that's uh, in terms of showing one's theory or, or uh, putting it forth. That's a very powerful uh, powerful way of of convincing others that hey, well, it's it's it can work out for you for you too. That would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before I end this, before we end our discussion, I wanted to ask you. Um, so in hearing this, 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 all the options and all the uh, scenarios we could, uh, or all the different ways we could change up our nominating process, people might be asking themselves, okay, what can we do? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, or as voters, as, as non-maybe political actors, what power do, do we have? have you, what, so what are some of the things, like, if we want to bring about a system like yours, or to at least begin that discussion with... Uh, yeah, with others and in, in who do have political power or who have political clout, how could we how could we do that? Well, that's the last chapter. I mean, I I, I go through through three scenarios, and the first scenario is there's nothing we can do because the 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 deck is so stacked against uh, change. The way the Constitution reduce makes the hurdles to what I'm proposing so strong that it probably will come to nothing uh, in any realistic sense. So therefore, my second scenario is it's going to take a while. That is, we have to have a social movement. Uh, just as we had a social movement, you know, for uh, black rights and for women's rights and for uh, gay rights and all of that sort of thing, uh, we need another movement. But this was not would not be based on identity politics uh, that give attention to particular uh, deprived or uh, oppressed minorities, but rather recognize that what democracy is all about is political equality. And political equality doesn't mean economic equality. It doesn't mean social equality in the sense that everybody has equal status or anything like that. It just means that every person in this country ought to be given equal respect. Their votes ought to be counted equally. 
And I think that our young people are pretty much attuned to that idea. I think the old people are more stuck in their old ways of thinking. Uh, And so I think it will take a little bit of time for this movement to, of prioritizing what I call political equality. It's really nothing more than one person, one vote. (laughs) And there's nothing deeply philosophical about it, but it's deeply embedded in the Enlightenment. It's deeply embedded in American culture. And therefore, I think in a few more generations, a few more decades, it's possible that there will be so much agreement with this kind of idea. If there are people linking that idea to electoral college reform or ways in which we conduct elections to ensure political equality, I think that this could be, again, almost a consensual position among Americans. So, yes, I mean, we just have to have people talking about it and people protesting for it, (laughs) those sorts of things. Yeah, and, and that all sounds hard, but it's meant to be. It is hard. It yeah. is hard. And it's meant to, and in a sense, it's, I think it's it's meant to be. This is something that uh, a majority of, or a good deal of people have to come to right. accept and adopt. Of course, my third scenario is that I create a crisis to create it immediately. <laughs> right after the next election, we'll have an electoral college crisis that neither the electoral college will be able to resolve the issue or... The Electoral College has a provision that the House would decide the issue if the electors in the college can't decide the issue. I create the situations where the House can't decide the issue. Then I create a wholly new concept nobody's ever thought about, which I call the Senate contingency election, where the Senate would ultimately decide the issue by choosing among the vice presidents Mm. of the two parties. And uh, that could work only in my scenario by there being a grand compromise to also get rid of the Electoral College because everybody comes to realize that this is not a, not a very functional system. Yeah. Last one, probably a bit harder to, to bring about than the... Than the oh, the, the last one is totally a fantasy. Yeah. But yeah. it's just uh, who would have thought that we would be in the middle of uh, the kind of uh, coronavirus crisis that we're in? Everything is... Politics and social things like this are subject to these periodic, you know, there are these episodic events Mm. that are totally unpredictable. And I'm trying to create such an unpredictable event after, as a consequence of the elections, that it will be like the coronavirus in that it will just set everybody's focusing on what is this and why have why don't we have a system in place to deal with this kind of crisis and re- wake people up to that this is a potential danger so that we are prepared for it and the only inoculation i can come up with is the kind of system i'm proposing and for more on that uh read you'll have to read paul's uh Paul's whole book. Now, just don't just turn to the to the last chapter to find out how how that all comes about. But um, it's a really it's a really nice book and, and and sort of goes through the issues. And what I liked about it is that it was someone who spent has spent years in uh, in considering not not just the topic but the broader sense of uh, or the broader issues that could be brought to bear on on the single singular issue of electoral college. And it wasn't just someone who, and you bring this up a, a little bit about your own, I guess, about academia in general, about how some people just uh, select a position and defend it as much as possible. This didn't seem like that. It seemed more like you're a well, like a well-considered and reasoned exploration of, of the topic. I'm, I hope you. I'm glad you got that out of it. I try to make this kind of a. First, I intended not for the academics. I'm intending it for the public. Right. Second, I'm telling it as a sort of evolution of my own thinking. Mm-hmm. And I am inviting... One thing nice about a self-published book is I can change it. Yeah. It's print on demand, and I'm already in the process of changing what I had, what you have before you because I had 
predicted, uh, using all the metrics, that Biden would be gone by now. <laughs> and now he's in the midst of the picture. So I've got to revise that chapter to be, get it any credibility. And I can revise what I think as I get feedback and events change. And I think that's how we we have to be so much less ideological in our thinking. So yeah. I, we have to be more open-minded, more philosophical, yeah. rather than pigeonholed in our thinking. Yeah, and so yeah, and I, I appreciated that about about the book and it, the gen, your your general approach. And um, it's a it's a good read. It's a good read, and it's a must read. Uh, you find it at KU Bookstore and. Any, anywhere else? Uh, well, you, they can find it at KU Bookstore. They can find it at the Raven. And they're available on any of the, uh, you know, the Amazons of the world. Who okay. Have, do the, you get the, it's cheaper as an e-book, let's yeah. put it that way. It's not expensive in any case. I've tried to make it very low price so anybody can buy it. I'm not interested in making money. I just want people to think about this issue. Yeah. And uh, you have an event coming up uh, at the KU Bookstore, and it's a signing event, or you'll be giving a talk as well? Uh, well, I think it'll—I don't know if I'll—it's not really decided. I think okay. it's going to be more of a discussion. I may make a few remarks at the beginning to get things going. And uh, when is that taking place? The last Thursday in uh, April. I'm not sure the exact—I think it's the 29th. It'll be two days before the Democratic primary. Okay. Well, look out for that, folks, and, and we'll also provide updates uh, with uh, Paul's event. Uh, well, Paul, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>